Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and a roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. I think that the criminalization of actual homelessness. So a lot of cities, especially in the past 10 years, there have been huge increases in laws passed, making it illegal to sleep outside, making it illegal to and any like personal activity in public spaces. I mean, if you are experiencing chronic homelessness and you don't even have anywhere to use the bathroom, you can be ticketed or fined for doing that. And then that just sort of pushes you farther down in the hole. And so when you have like one system trying to combat homelessness without a lot of resources, and then you have this other system of criminalization that is just really building up the barriers between people and access, like that is the most significant barrier I see for cities moving forward on like a big policy level. SDG Talkers, welcome back. Excited to give you the second episode in this mini-series collaborating with the Unleash Hacks United States. This whole hack is focused around homelessness. In my super formal Google search I just did, there's over 552,000 homeless people in the United States, according to a White House study. In this conversation, you're going to hear from Shelby Fredrickson, who's a straight-up rock star. I love learning about all her ideas, and we're going to talk about the core problems, but also some of these new ideas around innovative solutions. And she talked about her in her dissertation and work as the final year of her school, how she went around interviewing homeless population and asking them what they want and, and trying to propose ideas on not just throwing money at a solution and hoping for the best, but really diving into these wants and needs. And she elaborates a lot more eloquently than me is there's not a simple answer here. We need to explore the foundation of how do we best provide health care? How do we best look at short and long-term housing? And how do we best find some new employment and sustainable employment and healthcare housing options for these populations? I love the conversations around smartphones, fintech, and especially the concerning issues of how climate change is compounding this problem. I guarantee you're going to enjoy this conversation. Make sure to check out all the Unleash Hats USA social media info and um, just keep on SDG talking world. Shelby, welcome to the SDG Talks podcast. How are you doing today? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm grateful and honored to, to have you here. And for those of us who don't know, where, where are you located today? I'm in Baltimore, Maryland right now. Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, so I know Baltimore, and, and like many cities, they have different connections to, to homelessness. And, mm-hmm. and uh, this is something that you've worked on. And give us some background on, on the, the program and the work you've just finished and in, in sort of um, Baltimore's perspective from your eyes of its relationship with uh, homelessness. Sure. So I just finished a research project for my um, master's program on designing a permanent supportive housing program for Baltimore. In the program, we were supposed to designate clients, and I sort of designated a, a trio of clients that I would like to target in the future to work on a project like this. Usually it works with sort of just one 
sheltered network. And I think that for the solutions that I was trying to research, sort of the, a trio of a healthcare provider, a shelter network that only focuses on temporary housing, as well as an employment connection. In this case, I was working with Civic Works Center for Sustainable Careers in Baltimore, which is an amazing organization that trains people in um, like solar tech. And I think they're starting an urban agriculture program, but just sort of green jobs. Um, So sort of taking like the three sectors that are really needed to create housing solutions and then looking at how to target specifically chronic homelessness. So those are individuals that have been homeless for basically 75% of their time is unhoused. And I really wanted to focus on a solution that doesn't just get people housing, but keeps people housed in the long term. And the project definitely changed a lot as COVID hit and it developed more into sort of like an emergency response. Wow, that's that's an amazing mouthful of different things you're working on. And even as I as I hear you talk and I look at your bio, it's it's interesting where maybe even for me that I don't I'm learning more about this. Homelessness does mean so much more, and there's a lot of different pieces required in order to be able to best support homeless people, whether it's it's temporary solution, whether it's long-term solution, whether it's sustained employment, uh, a lot of these different puzzle pieces that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear from your perspective on, through this work and these interviews that you had and as you finished your, your degree at Pratt, What were some of these lessons learned from what the homeless community actually wanted? Um, Because I think it's easy for someone on the outside to be like, you know, just just give them food and tell them to go away or just do this. But what, from your interviews, did they actually want? Absolutely. And my my ability to directly interview people was really hindered by COVID. I had planned to like go out and do a lot of outreach work ended up not being possible with my project. But from what I learned and the people that I was able to talk to, my major takeaway is that we really, in our culture in the U.S., we have this idea of like what leads a person to become homeless um, and what really defines that experience. And I think that what got me interested in this, this like housing solutions in the first place was really that there is no set path that can lead to this. There are people that had millions of dollars and families and multiple houses. And then 10 years later down the road, they find themselves experiencing homelessness. There are people that fall into addiction for, you know, 5,000 different reasons. People that are victims of domestic violence, people that are manipulated by employers, people that are manipulated by landlords, like there, there's just so many reasons. And if we only are looking at creating one pathway to give care to people experiencing homelessness, then we're not really addressing the root of the problem. And that is really hard when there is just, you know, all of these outlets and all of these like origin stories where people are coming from. Yeah. Well said. I mean, earlier you talked about the different pieces of the puzzle needed to provide solutions, but I find it interesting. You said too, there's no cookie cutter storyline of how someone became homeless. And I think it's, it's sometimes a personal choice. Sometimes it's a nature nurture. There's, there's so many factors that go into that. And what are your thoughts on maybe some of the macro issues going on from a, from a policy standpoint and the 
the whole housing policy or, or low-income housing assistance. How does the history and sort of even COVID tie into how we're either accelerating or making the problem worse or, or hopefully maybe moving towards making it better? Absolutely. One huge issue that I looked at a lot in terms of like big policy things was the criminalization of drug use and addiction. Addiction is is a significant reason that people end up having to experience homelessness, especially, especially chronic homelessness, um, where they're sort of in and out of the system. And there are a lot of chronic health issues that go along with that, that dampen people's capacities to navigate these resources, even if they're already there. So even if a if a city does have like a really comprehensive shelter system and food resources and various types of housing solutions that cater to, to women or to LGBTQ plus populations, I think that the criminalization of addiction and drug use really dampens people's ability to access those resources. And if they're not given resources to sort of deal with that addiction and substance abuse, then they're immediately turned away. So then you're immediately sort of canceling out that a huge section of the population you're trying to help. The other thing is actually, I think that the criminalization of actual homelessness. So a lot of cities, especially in the past 10 years, there have been huge increases in laws passed, making it illegal to sleep outside, making it illegal to and many like personal activity in public spaces. I mean, if you are experiencing chronic homelessness and you don't even have anywhere to use the bathroom, you can be ticketed or fined for doing that. And then that just sort of pushes you farther down in the hole. So when you have like one system trying to combat homelessness without a lot of resources, and then you have this other system of criminalization that is just really building up the barriers between people and access, like that is the most significant barrier I see for cities moving forward on like a big policy level. Wow. And yeah, it seems like there's just a lot of these cards stacked up against the homeless population where it's maybe not providing any resources for opportunity and punishing for just trying to live the life. And it seems like an unfortunate downward spiral. And so what do we do? <laughs> you know, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on maybe and things that you're, that you think are possible and, and this being the leading up to the Unleash Hacks focus on homelessness and, mm-hmm. and for people listening that are entrepreneurs or other, or just passionate about SDGs, what do you think we can be done? And what would you say to other people that, that want to address some of these problems? For sure. I think it really starts with kind of what you just said is like we we ask people with the least resources and access in our society to constantly climb mountain after mountain to sort of prove their worthiness or prove that they deserve help. And I think that changing that attitude and that culture that housing is a right, it is like truly a basic human right that we need to work on providing people. It is not something that you should need to work for. It is something that should be guaranteed for you. And I think that we we think that for certain types of people and then we deny that right for others. And I think that seeing people experiencing homelessness as our neighbors and as people in our community and not people just on the outside of our communities is absolutely fundamental to changing that attitude. And 
in terms of like really concrete solutions, I think that like temporary housing is a band-aid and the emergency shelter systems that we've built up over the past two decades in most major cities is really just a temporary fix to a really huge vast problem. And a lot of the shelters have stay limits. They're very competitive. They are often dangerous for people, especially youth navigating the system. And they're very overloaded because they have to serve not only as shelters, but as giving out food, trying to get people connected to employment, trying to get people connected to substance abuse help. It's just like too much going on in one place. So I think going back to sort of that that triangle of what we need is sort of housing is one part, healthcare is the second most important part, and then concrete employment is the third most significant part. So I think that building housing solutions where we're giving people housing that is not contingent on necessarily sobriety or that you have to have a job before you get housing because in reality you know people that go out and try to interview for jobs and go to work and still don't have a place to come home to at night that's just not a sustainable solution and that just that make that teaches people that they still have to work for something that is a basic human right so i think that like for so permanent supportive housing means giving housing up front no questions asked. And then after you're housed and you're safe and you feel secure and you have this sense of autonomy that comes along with, you know, being in your own space and being responsible for yourself, what comes next is healthcare, including addressing substance abuse, um, addressing drug use, and then comes connection to employment opportunities. And I think that growing green economies in cities it leaves incredible room for um, connecting citizens who were um, previously experiencing homelessness. There's all these amazing, well-paying, unionized jobs available that are also focused on green energy and sustainable design and infrastructure. And that that's sort of like the long-term vision, I think, for like the next phase of how we address homelessness. Gosh, Shelby, I want to ask a million questions, but I'll, I'll try and continue to just keep it somewhat focused here. When you talked about that triangle, that struck a chord in me where I know within my day job, I, I work with first responders and military. And a lot of times there is this triangle of where we are now and how we're trying to get a solution to someone where that you have the necessarily the, the end users on one point of the triangle, the designer and the engineers on the other point, and then the, the funder or whoever the buyer is on the other point. So you kind of have to address these different points. And as you, you were talking about the need for healthcare, the need for short-term and long-term housing, and then the need for employment, those are all, that all makes sense. But how do you foresee some of these initiatives to be funded? And are there ways to make it where it's not 100% donation or charity-based, but what type of business models or enterprise do you think of or come to mind when we're talking about doing both charity and or business model here? For sure. One thing, what I sort of focus on in my research in the regards of like where we actually get these resources from was retrofitting existing building stock, which so my project was particular to Baltimore, which is 
one of those like more rare cities that is on the larger side, but is losing population. So Baltimore has a, a huge vacancy problem. You drive around and there are many homes that uh, many of which have been foreclosed upon, but just rows and rows of vacant housing. And although that is not exact, that blueprint isn't the same in all other cities, there is a lot of existing infrastructure that we have that is more ideal for this type of autonomous housing where you're living more on your own, whereas a shelter comes in, you need like a very large space, you need like a more the infrastructure needs to be designed for communal space, which is, as we're finding, is not the most productive. So when it comes to retrofitting buildings, instead of just building from the ground up, there are a lot of avenues available in terms of like grants and subsidies from the government. Um, community block development grants is one that different community development orgs are using to take what already exists and then transform it into subsidized housing. It's less expensive than building from the ground up. It absolutely is still expensive and you need to have a developer on board who understands that this is going to be subsidized housing and is not a landlord coming in that is strictly re focused on community revitalization just for profit. So getting, the, getting people on board up front is an extreme barrier to this, these types of solutions. Yeah, that makes sense. And it would seem we need to find different policy or different initiatives to make it more attractive to want to partake in this. And, and you, you just touched on a lot of the housing part. And coming from myself, I was in Unleashed in 2019, and, and I do a lot of work, particularly around water, safe water mm -hmm. and sanitation. I would love for you to talk about sort of one, one, how has COVID created some challenges for the homeless population and, and touch on the, the challenge of proper hygiene? And then also of with all these different overlapping aspects of homelessness, I mean, maybe give some context on how we can look to provide the ability to have safe water and, and particularly hygiene solutions to people who maybe don't have it because they don't necessarily have a, a roof to sleep under. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was doing this research, the CDC didn't come out with like a set framework for how um, homeless shelters were supposed to go about enforcing guidelines until mid-May. And then those were continuously revised throughout the summer because basically with the initial guidelines, of course, were to stay six feet apart, continuously wash your hands whenever possible, disinfect all services, all surfaces, excuse me, whenever possible. And it became very clear very quickly that that is just not possible in a shelter scenario in which it, the space is designed to pack as many people as possible into a sleeping area. So they also realized quickly that in a shelter where people are only allowed to sleep, they're not allowed to stay there during the day in most cases. So people were having to leave, go back out on the street and then come back at night. So that was just creating this huge web of just possible transmission. And it was just impossible to do contact tracing there. So then uh, major shelters around the country closed because they had mass outbreaks within a few days of, you know, they had two cases and then testing wasn't available. And then a week later they had 90 cases. So they just had to turn people away. 
the next step after that was sort of to create these outdoor locations, which is really only possible for a very few months in the year, most places in the U.S., I think that this was mostly successful in California. I know they tried to do it in Baltimore, but it was, it just was not, it was too hot for people to be outside. So they just marked out these six foot blocks on a parking lot. And that was sort of people's zones where they couldn't leave. And they had um, like three to four porta potties and temporary hand washing stations that are more designed for sort of like music venues or like temporary festival locations so they're they're not like long term so when the guidelines were basically to enforce social distancing and to mandate hand washing and usage of ppe and we had healthcare providers that didn't have access to ppe individuals experiencing homelessness were not high up on the list for those who needed access to those resources at all on top of the fact that constant exposure to bad air quality, um, addiction or substance use, and existing chronic health problems that go along with having experienced homelessness basically create the, the perfect immunocompromising conditions that lead to COVID. So it, the reality is that homelessness is just not compatible with health long-term. In a pandemic, it's much worse, obviously, but the existing conditions day to day is just that you can't maintain a healthy body or mind with the existence of homelessness. It's a challenge and that brought up more examples about how truly the, the cards are just stacked up against mm-hmm. the homeless population and my, my heart goes out to them. And it's somewhat uh, excites me with this conversation and the event of thinking about hopefully some solutions that are out there. And, and I always encourage entrepreneurs or innovators or whomever to, to realize that you don't need to invent a new product or software or widget to make an impact here. I, I challenge you to think about what are ways to repurpose an existing product and provide it in a way that is subsidized to the homeless population? What is a way to innovate on the business model? What is a way to influence policy? Those are all things that that come to mind as as, as things that need to happen. I I sure as heck don't have all those answers, but is there anything that comes to mind for you when you talk about innovation around providing healthcare or shelter or employment? It's some type of software app, a community development. What, is there anything that it, you're excited about right now or you would want to maybe make others aware of maybe some other resources that they should be aware of when approaching this issue? For sure. And I really like your point about like getting creative with what we have and like the technologies we have and the resources we have to like reform these solutions is like absolutely what we need to be doing, especially when the financial resources are limited. I think that there are one of my favorite initiatives that I've seen are getting smartphones to individuals experiencing homelessness. I think that a lot of people think that's sort of just like an extravagance. But in reality, when our whole world is digital and everything is online, just looking through Baltimore City's websites of homeless resources for individuals experiencing homelessness. A lot of the, the the ones that you can actually print out and hand to people, they have sort of these outreach cards are very outdated. They, they have like very basic maps that if you don't necessarily know the city very well or know the streets, you're not going to be able to use this map to go find like 
housing resources or food resources. So smartphones really are an incredible tool for people that need access to those things, just in terms of getting there, in terms of figuring out like even, okay, where can I live so that I can also get to my job? That's something that we do every day that everyone needs access to that sort of thing. So just like really basic and free access to the internet is would be a huge revelation in getting people the help they need. And, and I know Verizon and AT&T, they're all coming out mm-hmm. big with the whole evolution of 5G and mm-hmm. the cost of these, the basic, you know, we, we're not talking, you need a, an iPhone 11 plus. Yeah. We need the, the bare bones, some of the, the, the newest Google and Android phones. I mean, mm-hmm. those, the cost on those from manufacturers are you know, 25 to 50 bucks. And, and yeah. so I think trying to find some partnership to get phones in the hands of people is important. I mean, I sit here holding my fancy iPhone and I'm always amazed at how my, my world revolves around my phone. Absolutely. And I think too about your point with, and I want to maybe hear your thoughts on like financial tech, FinTech with, I see some restaurants now that say no cash is allowed anymore. So now you're talking about panhandlers that they, you know, you just got money, but you can't go to Sweet Greens or Chipotle or wherever it may be. So I know with things like Cash App and Venmo and maybe some other types of digital financing, is that something that you think would be an option of uh, kind of how homeless people could use a smartphone for fintech like that? Or what else besides maybe fintech or like fintech comes to mind as other ways to leverage smartphones and the access to internet? For sure. I think that's definitely a possibility. I think that there are some barriers sort of built into those. Like some of them you need a social security number for. Some of them you need to have an existing bank account that is just like not not an option for someone with no credit or just cannot walk into a financial institution and open a bank account. So I think that having an option where you can trade or you can store money electronically like Venmo that's not necessarily attached to a bank account is absolutely an option. I know some cities are trying to develop some sort of currency. So it's like a card or a coin or something that someone can give you that you can walk into participating restaurants and it's not cash, but it like means, okay, I, I have this card or coin and it's $20 and I can use this at any sort of participating location. I know that also like some people are very resistant to the idea of giving cash to people on the street. Just so I think that that would just increase mutual aid in terms of people sponsoring someone or, uh, you know, buying 20 tokens and then giving them out to the people that they see so that they have access to food or they can walk into a restaurant of their choosing or a coffee shop or whatever, you know, their choice. So it leaves that that choice on their end. And then I guess sort of gives people more ownership of where they're donating their money on their end. If yep. they're the idea of cash. Well, it seems like there's definitely an opportunity here from a, a fintech or crypto perspective of having low cost, easy to, to open and manage digital financing that can be used to get over any sort of payment barriers. And mm-hmm. so that's obviously just one. But with, uh, let's say the employment part, that was, that was something that caught my mind. Is that sort of like a, 
maybe some type of online training mechanism or some matchmaking or, or what type of, what thoughts you have on that and what, what innovations are going on and what innovations would you like to see with that? Sure. So right now I think it's like that in terms of actual service providers for populations who are experiencing homelessness, I mean, it is still very much like an agent that works with you to connect resources that they're aware of or that come to them needing people. So it's, it's very restrictive in that sense and it's very isolated, but I mean, even sort of like a, like a LinkedIn sort of like, cause you know, people come from all walks of life and have all these skills and experiences. I think that having personal profiles that people can connect themselves to employers that don't necessarily need to rely on like a, a social worker who has 80 different clients that day to work with. So they sort of are directly connected to that resource. I think that could be a big potential improvement in the future. Nice. Yeah. Obviously no, no shortage of, of needs and, but also with every need is a, is an opportunity. Two things I had in my notes that I wanted to touch on here before we closed out, I could have talked about this earlier, but you did mention in Maryland in some places during this COVID crisis, even with, let's just focus on restaurants for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eat outside. That's great. It works for a little bit, but some places it's either through the most, like I live in Chicago, it's, it's pretty cold from like November to March, even April, sometimes May. Yeah. And you can't really do outside seating unless you're bundled up in parkas. Mm-hmm. And then there's some places like in East Coast, Northeast, where it gets really hot in the summer. And we're dealing with climate change variation. We're dealing with high levels of flooding in some areas, high levels of droughts in other areas. How does climate change and rising sea levels or, or whatever you want to call it, but this, this issue of this evolving climate around us negatively or positively impact a homeless population. Absolutely. That was sort of the other like big factor in my research. I was looking at directly how climate change is going to affect populations that are experiencing homelessness. One is that climate change increases it elevates the conditions for a pandemic. It changes vector territories, so bugs and ticks and mosquitoes that transmit diseases, their territories flux with the weather. So that drastically changes just the times and the places that people are coming into contact with vectors that they don't normally come into contact with. So that's a huge, maybe not first off in the U.S., maybe it's it's probably going to happen somewhere else first. And it's definitely already happening in parts of um, Southeast Asia where it's getting much warmer and it's getting much wetter. And they're seeing increases in communicable diseases as a result of that. So that's going to be an issue. Right? Temperatures, of course, is probably the top concern for the U.S., specifically Baltimore, where you already have, you can look with sort of different data analysis that neighborhoods with lower income and higher where more people are staying who are experiencing homelessness are up to 10 degrees hotter than areas with much higher median incomes and consequently have more access to parks and tree cover and greenery that really reduces the exposure to that heat. And it really stresses 
city's existing emergency resources. So as a flooding and continues as storm surges continue as like major national disasters continue to sort of deplete the existing financial resources and the way cities are structured to deal with those emergencies if a storm takes out 10% of a city's housing stock then that city's emergency shelter system is immediately put under intense strain. After Hurricane Katrina, there was just no way for New Orleans to house all the people that needed to be housed. And so the people that were constantly in and out of that system, the people that are chronically homeless, the people that are much more likely to have chronic illness, substance abuse that really limits their capacity to navigate all of these things, they're the ones that are first pushed out of the system. So I would big storm events and big climate events are also going to be a really, really big issue for the existing system in the context of homelessness. Yeah. So for everyone listening, think about homelessness in the context of disasters and Mm -hmm. what are ways that we can have better preparation and quicker response to be able to provide that short-term immediate, but also that those stepping stones to the long-term recovery and, and it's, it's location by location. So there might be some standardization there. And so you did mention green economies earlier and you mentioned in your last chat there, uh, green space. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we just hear this word green thrown in front of other nouns or verbs. And it's, it's like, okay, well that uh, green, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. What does green economies mean in your eyes and how can the focus around green economies lead to maybe a blueprint on how we can create more equitable and and fair cities and opportunities for homelessness? Yeah, absolutely. I think sort of the first tier of that is the green economy is mostly focused on technology right now. And it's not necessarily like super advanced technology. It's sort of the basic energy efficiency technologies that we already have, um, like the solar panel, just the, the world around solar panels has evolved so much in the past five years even. So now that we have like the availability of this tech, We need people trained in installing it. We need people trained in going to people's houses and telling them how, like, what the actual infrastructure would look like, what it would cost, what it would do for them. And that's just for solar panels. There's also heating and air conditioning units. So there's the people, we need people going out and evaluating and auditing people's existing systems in their houses working with landlords and developers and kind of like in an urban environment where people aren't in individual homes, updating those existing systems so the building's more efficient. I know in New York especially, and I, I'm sure the rest of the country is right behind them, passed a, a number of very strict building laws that are going to gradually take effect that demand much higher energy efficiency from buildings. So a lot of the green economy is going to revolve around building efficiency and updating existing systems. And all of that means that there's like these huge opportunities for all of these different jobs, not necessarily from like tech developers, but all the way down the line for people working on the ground, people educating other people, marketing for all these things. It's sort of like this whole world around making things more efficient. And I think that 
energy efficiency tech is sort of first up with that. In Baltimore, it also is a lot around urban agriculture right now to address the issue of food deserts and access to healthy food. So when you have a lot of vacant land, this is also possible. So we have people working on farms, people delivering food, people creating food system networks that sign people up for CSA type programs where they get a share of agriculture every season or every month or every week. There's like this this whole new food economy building up and it's building equity that didn't exist before. It's building greater access and it's also it's creating employment for people that already live there or people that are experiencing homelessness that are already there and they're already ready to work. They already have incredible skills and experience and they just need that opportunity to learn and opportunity to be compensated for their time and their labor. So well put. And yeah, I think the looking at permaculture and in a way to, to leverage rooftop gardening. I know Baltimore and I actually have a friend that has a startup out of DC called uh, Uptop Acres. And yeah. it, it ties into not only food production, but it helps reduce stormwater runoff, which mm-hmm. ties into a healthier, more, more efficient city. So there, there's definitely a lot of cool overlap when you start looking at those green economy jobs. And you, you mentioned like solar jobs or HVAC. I think traditionally that would be considered like a blue collar job using your hands to do stuff. But in essence, it, it is this whole new focus on green economies that can create all the new labor jobs, the marketing jobs, the sales jobs, and it's expanding upon stuff that is already out there um, and exactly. making it more efficient. So to close this out here, two questions that I want you to answer, and it could be in any either order. What's one thing right now that really excites you? And what's something that absolutely terrifies you or, or keeps you up at night? Whoa. <laughs> I'll start with what keeps me up at night because uh, I want to end on a high note. I think that we're, we're seeing so many disasters play out at once like this pandemic, this economic crisis, the, um, these fires in California, like we are, it's just one after another. And I, I'm worried that people are becoming even more numb to this disaster mode and this collective experience of, of trauma. And I, I think that people were sort of in that position before, but I worry that especially younger people, they are becoming so jaded because of the heaviness of all of this. And I think that just pushing to show people that there are solutions, that there, like, there are these enormously complex problems and they're happening right now and they're just going to keep getting worse they're not going to keep getting better. They're going to get much worse before we, we really figure out ways to navigate and move past them. Yep. But I, I'm really excited by just experiencing the pandemic first in New York and then moving to Baltimore recently back home. I think that we've seen how these big systems are, have been broken and they're fracturing, but we're seeing these small a bottom level up organizations and efforts 
just from community gardens, neighbors pulling together and organizing their own sort of food systems. I know in New York, there was a collective of tattoo shops that pulled together, got all of their PPE because they use so many gloves and protective equipment. They pulled together and within months were able to deliver thousands of boxes of PPE to hospitals when the state government wasn't able to deliver it on time. All of these little community efforts and reliances on your neighbors and the people that you see every day and the people that you have really grown into your community, whether that's very small or whether it's like you really feel that in your neighborhood, I think that people are starting to realize that it's it's our responsibility and we are capable of that. We are capable of really providing for one another and pooling resources and pooling energies and really appreciating that we all have we all bringing so many different things to the table in different ways and that's how we're getting through this. Shelby, you communicated so eloquently and and amazingly and frankly if someone hasn't told you yet you should consider running for office or something and i will help be a campaign manager or something but you really have a good grasp of all the different pieces that are involved it's not one particular thing there's many problems there's many solutions and frankly i think this this will be a really useful piece of content for the hack uh, coming up in a few weeks and and moving forward so just on behalf of the SDG Talks community, the Unleash Hacks community, and, and everyone, just thank you for your selfless work around this important topic. And I'm really excited to learn more and, and see what you work on next. Thank you so much. I love talking about this stuff. It's very exciting. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community. The goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.